innovation is not synonymous with design. No. It's not synonymous with technical advancement or even invention. Again, all very, very important elements yeah. in, in ingredients into innovation. But I think at its essence, innovation is about surprise. In today's episode, I have the pleasure to speak with my longtime friend, Darren Abrams. He's the head of corporate strategy at Bose. We discuss the genesis of innovation, the value and challenges of corporate rabble-rousers, and strategy as the ultimate bias buster. Welcome to Beyond Innovation, a series that breaks down the mystique, explores what works, what doesn't, and what innovation really means with experts who live it every day. Welcome, everybody. My name is Justin Sorotin, and this is another episode of Beyond Innovation. Today, I have a guest that I've known for a really long time. I'm really excited about this. Um, Darren Abrams, who comes to us from Bose. Uh, he and I have worked together since I don't even know when. We're dating ourselves. It's been a long time. A long time. And we've worked together in a variety of different capacities. And I'm Really excited to have this conversation because Darren comes from a very different background from me, very different background from many of the other guests we've had thus far. And his perspective is going to be fantastic for all of us to learn from. So, Darren, welcome. Thank you for having me. Um, so let's, um, let's just give you a chance to introduce yourself, give us a little bit of history about you and how you've sort of come to where you are. So I am the director of corporate strategy for Bose Corporation. Many of your viewers or listeners probably know Bose for our noise-canceling headphones, our Bluetooth speakers, sound bars, automotive sound systems. Those are certainly some of our more recognizable products that people, many people know and love. Bose is also in some lesser-known spaces. We've recently launched an over-the-counter hearing aid, a new market for Bose. Which I uh, bought. Yeah, very, very good. Mm -hmm. Not for you, though. Not for me, no, no. Um, we are also um, in uh, aviation headsets. We make aviation headsets that are very popular with pilots. We make military headsets for combat soldiers operating in, in high noise, high stress environments. Of course, fans of the NFL uh, will recognize sure. on any given Sunday, coaches on the sideline wearing uh, Bose headsets. We also have a professional services division that makes um, a, a wide array of installed systems for uh, venues ranging from restaurants and performing arts centers all the way on up to arenas. So it's a very diverse company. Uh, Bose has been around for a very long time, was founded in 1964 by Dr. Amar Bose. Uh, Dr. Bose was a prolific inventor, innovator, uh, a true visionary leader, uh, built the company over many, many years, and, and really built Bose on the basis of innovation. Right. It's, it's infused throughout the DNA of the company. It's the purpose of the company. It's written into our essence and values. Uh, it still very much permeates the culture of the company today. So it's a very creative place. It's a very innovative place. And to operate in a strategy role in that environment is, uh, is a fun gig. It's funny because... Obviously, you and I have talked a lot since you've gone to Bose, which I don't even know, eight, eight years ago? About eight years ago, yeah. And I had no idea of how much of Bose is not consumer products. I had no idea, right? Like my impression of Bose yes. was always a consumer brand first. Yes. And not until you learn about it and you engage with it that you realize yes. that's only one piece and it's not even that 
it's not even the whole big piece. It's just one piece that's of the right. company. That's right. Yeah, and, it's always been a very diverse company. And yeah. that's part of the innovation heritage. The company has experimented over the years in many things, right. I mean, areas even in uh, 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 truck seats, for example, right. for a period of time, the company had uh, applied some of its noise canceling technology in a, in a very different way to remove uh, uh, road vibrations for long haul truckers, things like that. So very long heritage of, of experimenting, trying lots of different things. Of course, some things work, some things don't. Yeah. Um, like every company, you have to keep reinventing yourself over time. So coming from that diverse background, coming from the space that you've worked in at Bose being on the strategy side, give us a sense of some of the ways that strategy and innovation work together. Let's start with Bose, but then let's sort of broaden that at large because the strategy, the strategy component of your life has always had some relevance to the way that innovation is built. When we worked together 15, 20 years ago, there was that. When you hired my firm 25 years ago, there was that. Yes. And I feel like that's a that's a topic that's really under-leveraged in the in the business space where people have this slightly distorted view of what strategy is, what innovation is, and what those roles and relationships are. So let's let's Get your take on that. This, this will be a fun conversation because you've chosen what are perhaps two of the most overused words yes. in the business lexicon. On purpose. Strategy <laughs> and innovation, right? Yes. So everything today has a strategy. Everybody's got a strategy. And of course, everybody wants to be an innovator, mm -hmm. right? So there's nothing wrong with that, of course. Yeah. Um, but uh, what I find is that there's no common definition for either of these terms. So right. sometimes conversation around strategy, around innovation can become very confused very quickly because we may not agree on what we mean by strategy or what we mean by innovation. So maybe a good place for us to start is to talk a little bit about what we actually do mean about by strategy and by innovation, a yeah. little bit of level setting or calibration. So let me start with strategy. And I'll start with what strategy is not, and then I'll get to what strategy is, at least in my view mm -hmm. and how, how I use the term. So strategy is not the same as vision setting. Uh, sometimes Vision and strategy get conflated. Uh, vision is very important. An organization has to have a vision. Strategy has to actually begin with a vision. Um, but strategy and vision are not the same thing. In the same way, strategy is not the same thing as goal setting. Oftentimes, you know, people will think of strategy as an ambition or a goal. We want right. to go and attain market share. We want to enter a new market space, a new market vertical. Those are not really the same things. Nor is it the annual process by which companies look at budgets and, you know, determine resourcing. All of these things that I'm mentioning are good and natural elements to running any business, and they're necessary, and they're actually integral parts of the strategy process. Right. But in and of themselves, they are not strategy. So the way I like to think about strategy is, at its essence, strategy is about choice. And to put a finer point on it, I think strategy is really about choice, making informed choice, given a set of internal constraints and external uncertainty. Every business in the world has a finite set of resources to work with. Right. Those are your people, your dollars, time, risk, capabilities. No matter what business you're in, every company has those constraints that they have to work within. Those are hard to change. So that's kind of the internal reality. At the same time, every market 
today is highly competitive. It's 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 very rare, if if not um, impossible, to find or think of an example where a company is is sort of the only player on the field, right? right? Uh, uh, all markets are competitive, and all markets are increasingly volatile and uncertain. So this is where I come back to my definition of strategy, which is it's a, really about making informed choice with those in, internal constraints and external uncertainty. Yeah. So uh, so that's really what I think of strategy as being all about. Now, in strategy, uh, one thing that's helpful to keep in mind is I think a really important concept is. Every one of your competitors also has a strategy. So, right, seems sort of like a natural obvious, thing, but, but but it's 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 helpful to keep that in mind. Well, sometimes we think of ourselves as like unique unicorns within our own space and forget that all of our competitors are trying to do the same thing that we're doing. All of your competitors, you can assume are going after the same customers, the same That's market. Exactly. They are trying to uh, undermine your strategy, you're trying to undermine their strategy. Right. The point I'm trying to make here is in order to be successful, your strategy doesn't need to be perfect, but it does need to be better than your competitor's strategies. Right. And that's actually quite a high bar. Right. And it's a high bar because you can assume in most industries, in most competitive situations, that your competitors have access to all the same things that you have access to. Now, naturally, there are varying degrees, and I'm going to set aside for a moment quasi-monopolistic sure. markets sure. that we we certainly see today yeah. in certain situations. But in a general sense, most businesses will be competing in an environment where their competitors will have access to similar market data, data, mm -hmm. customer data, uh, technologies. Like yep. Technologies spread very quickly. Talent, right? We have a very mobile talent force in the world today, yeah. and certainly the pandemic has has changed that even more. So you have to be to be successful. You have to have a better strategy than your competitors. So in the strategy world, we often think about what are the levers you can pull to affect a really powerful strategy. Trying to identify what those levers are that give you a magnified or an outsized impact. Right. in the market given uh, a certain amount of input. And so if you think about it at a certain level of abst abstraction, what's one of the most powerful elements of a strategy that you could uh, employ? Think of even in a military strategy or in the sense of uh, a game plan that a sports team might have. That can be the element of surprise. Right. The element of surprise introduced into, into a playing field of any type uh, can be very, very powerful. And that really takes me to the bridge between strategy and innovation. Got it. So pause for a moment on strategy. I've talked a little, about, <laughs> a little bit about what I think strategy yeah. is and isn't. Let's talk about innovation and what right. innovation is and isn't. So in a similar vein, I think you would probably agree that innovation is not synonymous with design. No. It's not synonymous with technical advancement or even invention. Again, all very, very important elements yeah. in, in ingredients into innovation. But I think at its essence, innovation is about surprise. Right. It's about delivering surprise to a customer in a way that creates that wow factor. Right. right? right. Surprise in the sense of you introduce to a customer a problem they didn't even know they had until you've given them the solution. Right. right? So surprise delivered in a way that creates customer delight in new and unexpected ways is a very, very powerful lever and can be deployed in service of a strategy 
to create that element of surprise in the marketplace. Yeah. And in a way, if we go back to my, my uh, notion of external uncertainty, you actually create that uncertainty for your competitors. So therein, I think, lies the very powerful connection between strategy and innovation. Innovation can be an incredibly powerful lever uh, for strategy. And I think uh, when you talk about the surprise and the wow moment, some of the some of the at least with the with the projects that we work on and the customers that we work for, oftentimes that wow moment is seen as something big when wow moments can often be really subtle and That's really small, right? Like, so the way something delivers its promise can be, can be simple. Like uh, I push a button, it turns on and it just does what I expected to do. I had to go through no setup. Minimizing steps. Yeah. How how powerful is it today when you, especially in the technology field, yeah. when you get a product that just, it just works. It just works. It just works. Yeah. It requires very little. And the one before it required two steps. Required two steps or three steps yeah. or for you to have to figure something out or go and scroll through menus, right? But it, it just works intuitively. It works naturally. That's an incredibly powerful yeah. lever, yeah. right? And and so while we're talking about technology products and, and you know big wows versus small wows, this is one way in which I think the world is changing very quickly and yeah. has changed in, in that... Software infuses so many products today in so many fields, not just in consumer fields, but even in the B2B world. And with software platforms, you actually have the opportunity to deliver those little wows with every release, right? right? Yeah. So, so I think gone are the days, maybe not gone, but uh, in many cases, you can find opportunities to, to deliver that delight to customers in, in small but I think the key is very regular increments. And when you can be successful at doing that, you really cultivate customer loyalty and yeah. I mean, satisfaction. A number of the people who we've had come on, there's been this really constant theme about what you just described, which is this notion that you can build innovation through increments. And those increments, when they're regular and the customer is becomes... It's almost like they expect, they start to expect it, which makes it harder because with every step you take, then the expectation goes up. Okay, what's going to be the next one? What's going to be the next one? What's going to be the next one? But when you can pull that off, you build incredible loyalty from a customer base. Incredible loyalty. Because their their whole notion is like, okay, well, I know they delivered for me before. They're probably going to deliver for me again. And I'm going to trust that whatever they've given to me in this next round is going to be the thing that I'm after, and I don't even yes. know what that is. It's a little bit like buying the record from a band that you liked all their other records, and you've it, never heard it. Yeah, You're just it, like, yeah, it, yeah it, I'm going to like this. It, it, that's a great metaphor. Yeah. And and I think in, in addition, it actually lowers the barriers to purchasing the next product. Totally. Because when when a customer has that, that ingrained experience over time, yeah. the next purchase that they make, uh, uh, whatever the next product is, even if that first-gen product is does not do all the things that they expect it to do. There's a confidence that's instilled right. that I'll wait for the next release. And I, I just I have that confidence it will get better over time. So it really sort of lowers the, the yeah. initial barrier. And I think, purchase. as you said before, like that's a that's not a consumer products model. That's just a product model. That's yes. whether you're B2B, D2C, exactly. B2C, it's exactly. everybody. Everybody's exactly. got that same, I'll call it opportunity, yes. which is to basically say, okay, we're going to be clever about how we create incremental change. And those incremental changes mean you're going to be happier with every version of our product that you go after. Yes. And, 
and and you build this 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 customer this customer loyalty. Yes. Okay. So so as we as we kind of like drill down further into this notion of strategy, <laughs> let's just talk about who leads because I think that is another point of conflict within large organizations. You've got a strategy team that lives over here. You got a product team that lives over there. Yes. They get into meetings once or twice a month or quarter or whatever it turns yes. into. And it turns into this, okay, well, who's, who's driving the bus and yes. who's, who's the team that gets to define one versus the other. So give us a sense of how that's worked in your world and what your opinion is. However, that plays out within your sure. current job or, 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 or what you think is the most appropriate way for those two to have a relationship. For sure. What I have seen, what I've learned over time is that teams, companies, organizations can spend an incredible amount of time debating over who leads. Yeah. And in especially when you get around the topic of innovation, where yeah. does the innovation originate from? Is it the, is it the domain of the, of the technologists? Is it the design team? Is it, you know, sort of where is the origin of innovation? And there can be very, very hotly contested, hotly debated um, arguments over this. And what I've learned is that it, those arguments are actually a complete waste of time. Yeah. It really doesn't matter where an idea originates from. But I, but I do think what is incredibly important is regardless of wherever an idea originates from, and I'm going to key in on sort of the, the innovation, the genesis of innovation. I think, you know, the two general sides of the argument is that innovation is born in the lab or, you know, born in the design center, that ideas come from technologists who are, you know, deeply, deeply ingrained in a particular field of study. And there is there's kind of another side to it that says, well, you really have to derive uh, the innovation from from customer insights. Right. You have to really go deep and understand the unmet needs or the jobs to be done, and and what what whatever flavor of that is sort whatever, of your, whatever jargon term you want to whatever apply jargon to that. term you want to apply <laughs> to that. And 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 companies can waste a lot of time and, and yeah. get locked into these battles. So. What is incredibly important, what I've learned over time, is regardless of whether an idea starts with an insight about an un underserved customer need, an inconvenience that maybe you, you identify a customer is living with, yeah. you think you could solve, or whether there's a brilliant new seed of an idea coming from a technologist, is you have to put those things together as quickly as possible. It's usually an asymmetry at the beginning. Yeah. You have an insight without a solution, or you have a potential solution that seems really interesting at the outset. And some people are looking at it and saying, really interesting potential? I'm not quite sure what a customer yeah. would do with it. Yeah, are we solving a problem nobody has? Yes, yeah. yes. Is it is it a solution? <laughs> it's, it's classic. You know, right. <laughs> in yeah. search of a problem. Right. So uh so I think one of the most effective things you can do there is you have to drive as quickly as possible towards what I think of as a proposed needs solution match hypothesis. So if you have an insight, you very, you've got to rally the appropriate resources very quickly yeah. to try to think about what potential solutions could exist. And conversely, uh, if, if someone has a, a technical or a design idea, you, you can, those things can go on for a very long time right. in the lab and like for years and years, just sort of being nurtured and, 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 and massaged without actually getting it in front of a customer. So, so do you, do you, do you take the moment to define the hypothesis as these things start to emerge and say, okay, everybody just, everybody pause. 
let's define what we believe to be true. I think that's what you have to force. Yeah. And and I don't think that comes naturally no, in my either. experience. Yeah. This is where bringing teams together in a collaborative way, and you really have to force that discipline. Like, right. you know, it just isn't usually a natural process. Yeah. But when you can do that, what it then allows you to do is to turn the energy and the time and the focus to designing the killer experiment to test and validate the hypothesis. Right. Remember, the point early on is not to be right. right. It, it's absolutely not the point. You know you're not going to be right. right. The point is to get to a testable hypothesis early yeah. and then spend the energy designing the set of experiments that will allow you to, as quickly as possible, validate or invalidate that hypothesis. Find out where you're right. Find out where you're wrong. Decide whether you're going to toss the idea aside. Pivot. Start yep. over. I think that's where most. I think that's where most of these processes go awry. Is that the goal is not to to make sure you're right, but to find out what you know, what you don't know, and where yes. you need to learn more, and where you need to spend your energy. Because I think so many teams, like you said, come into this process assuming they're right, and then they build a program to validate their prior assumptions. That they're right. It's human nature. It's human it? nature. It's, it's yeah. human nature. And yes. and and so, give us a sense of what what this team feels like. Like who's who's on one of these teams when it's successful, and then who's on one of these teams when it's not successful. What are the types of characters that go into this that help you get to the point where you can build a good hypothesis and a good test of that hypothesis in a way that's relatively unbiased. Yeah, I, I think I think balance between disciplines, between design and technology and business is absolutely yeah, key. Yeah, I agree. So I think, you know, uh, if, if, if something stays stuck in, in either side of that, yeah. either camp for too long, um, you're going to waste a lot of time. So the teams can, the composition of the teams can look very different depending on, on what the situation is. But generally I find uh, it's very helpful to have a product person, someone who's sort of representing the business to mm -hmm. some degree that can look very different in, in different organizations. Uh, typically someone who's representing the technology discipline, perhaps product design, uh, oftentimes someone who represents uh, an insights function, sort of you know, user experience, user research. I yeah. mean, this is sort of a, in a general sense, I can be a very core team. These teams can scale up and down too, depending on, on, uh, on the nature of the work and the, yep. and the nature of the product and the technology. What's really important is that there is a balanced viewpoint and that you are trying to validate it holistically the the viability the the sort of the desirability and the feasibility of the idea kind of all in concert and right. and that's uh that's kind of the the, the magic triangle it's funny because like you, you those those three words roll off your tongue and i've known you long enough and worked with you enough to know that those are things that you implement in your projects all every single time we've had this conversation about like how do we how do we validate those three pillars mm -hmm. but i think it's something that when I step back and I think about other collaborative efforts that I've gone through, that willingness to separate yourself emotionally from whatever the thing is, whatever the idea is, whether that's a product, a service, a new business venture is so hard for teams. And I don't know how you teach that. I don't know how you build that into the culture because it's something that, if you, if you don't do it, you just end up telling yourself what you want to hear every single time. 
And if you can do it, I mean, I've worked with you on stuff where you have actively known at a certain point, like, okay, it's time to, it's time to start to kill this because we discovered the following things. And that is so challenging for other, for other people to do. And, and, um, and I feel like it's, it's a trait that companies need to really think through is like, how do we know when an idea is actually a bad idea? Cognitive bias is extremely powerful, powerful. And, and, it, and it permeates all of us, right? Yeah. And, and, it, and it permeates uh, organizations. It is very difficult to, uh, to maintain that objectivity as you know, people can get very emotionally vested in ideas. When you're yeah. talking about the the nebulous front end of innovation, um, you know, people are drawn to that yeah. because they're passionate about yeah. it, and so it's very easy to to get caught up in the emotion and get vested in an idea. It's, hap- it's happened to all of us. I mean, it's, it's happened to all of ha- us. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, no, nobody is excluded from that. No. So one of the functions that strategy can play in in the innovation role is um, to to try to uh, be that voice of objectivity yeah. and and be kind of the bias busters, if right. you will, and uh, to to try to remove bias. And I think, in my experience, uh, one thing that's very helpful here is to have a good solid framework for how you evaluate ideas progressively, okay. yeah. and that takes some structured thinking up front. Um, I'm a big fan of a, a particular framework that that I have used successfully over time. I, I've used a, a, a variant of something that was written about in the Harvard Business Review some 15 years ago, but it's a, it's a very powerful framework called RWW, which is code for is it real? Can we win? Is it worth doing? Hmm. And those three stages of asking questions that are derivative of that at the right stage as you progress through an idea is a very helpful construct. So at the beginning, the is it real part, it really goes back to that fundamental problem solution hypothesis. And there are questions that you can lay out at the outset and structure this to say, here are the, the questions that really need to get answered at a good enough level of fidelity don't strive for false precision. Right. That's a fool's errand. Right. But you know, a good enough level of fidelity to begin to validate the central hypothesis and, and find out where you're wrong and pivot. So getting at the question of is it real helps you get at the the the, the sub-questions of is the market and the customer need real? Or are we are we on base? Are we off base? And is this concept that we have, is the the emerging product idea real? Meaning, is it a a valid solution? Does it really answer the need? Is it something that could be made made with known technologies? Is it something that we believe could be made and delivered in an economic fashion? That kind of thing. And then, can we win? There is a a whole bunch of sub-questions that lie within that umbrella that really start to bridge the gap between a really exciting idea and something that's strategic. And so can we win? Can can the company, can our company actually deliver this uh, in a cost-effective manner? Do we have the capabilities? Do we, could we sustain it, right? There's there's all kinds of really powerful questions that can be asked and answered in 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 that subset. And then the final thing of is it is it worth doing? 
is where a lot of companies stumble. Yeah. So you can have a very powerful idea, you can develop conviction that you could win and succeed, but the question of is it worth doing really is a strategy question because it gets to portfolio management. It gets to questions like, is this brand aligned? Is this aligned with our enterprise strategy? Given other things we could invest these resources in, is this the best choice? Is this the best portfolio fit? Right. So. Whether you use a, a framework like that or something else, I think that is the key to having that objectivity and diffusing or mitigating the the inevitable emotional battles that can can really result. I mean, from, those are three idea. Those are three pretty basic ideas that again you can sort of apply across the board because I think that last that last topic of, is it worth it? Is this the right place for us to be? Is one of those where we've certainly, we've certainly come across that where you, you, you sort of know it in your gut, but there's no re real good way to validate it unless you've created a process that lets you do it at some point in the discussion to say, Hey, wait a minute. Like the opportunity cost is too high for us to go after this because otherwise we're going to burn resources. We're going to apply them to this, to this area where we don't belong over here. Yeah. And, and I know, I know I have been a part of projects where we're on the outside, right? We're not a part of our client's core business. We're a, we're a service provider and we're coming in going, this all seems great. If you were this other company, <laughs> right? Like we've all been there. We're like, this it's is a great, great business idea. for some company. Great idea. I love it. But maybe not for you. And it's yeah. always really hard to talk to people out of that. Because like, yes. no, it's a good idea and we can make money yes. at it. It's like, yeah, yes. you can. Yeah. But it's not really driving you toward the place where you're trying to get your business to. Yes. And therefore, maybe it isn't a good idea for you. Yes. It's a good idea in general. Yes. So that's a really challenging. I think it's challenging to be that self-reflective <laughs> and be willing to go, I don't, I don't know if this is such a good idea. And it's interesting because I think what you have an advantage of over me is that you get to be emotionally separated. You get one degree of separation from the nuts and bolts of what's being built and the ability to just sort of sit back from it and go, okay, well, everything about this looks great, except we're the wrong brand for it. Yes. And that's a, that's a position that somebody from within a strategy group can take that somebody from within a product group We're we're it's, the, the, the technologists and engineers and designers who are doing it, they're wired the wrong way to make that decision. Yes. They're just like, I know this is awesome. I'm yes. going to make this because it's awesome. Yes. And they're just, they're just not built to be able to have that internal dialogue. And in many cases, you shouldn't be asking them no, to make no, those, right, right. to answer those questions. Right. Right? You want them to be like, you, you want them to be tenacious. You want yeah. them to be inspired. You want them to yeah. be, to be passionate about what they're doing. But yes, somebody does have to play that role. And if it makes you feel any better, yes, strategy is often in those, in, in leading those discussions. They're, they're tough conversations to have. Yeah. Sometimes you're, you're faced with uh, something that seems like a, a very, very good idea and, and very powerful and very inspired. But for one reason or another, it might not be the right time. It might not be the, the right thing to do. It might just simply not be the right fit. It may not uh, meet the risk profile. Yeah. And I think we're uncomfortable with the idea of the, the real value of saying no. We talk about it, but there's real value in sometimes knowing where those limits are and where those boundaries are and being willing to say no to something. And you know, I look at some of the very big technology companies and you think like, do you use a, do you use a 
terrible example of Facebook having all the money that they'd ever want to spend going into any avenue that they need to. That burden of having all that cash means there's somebody sitting in front of that saying, nope, we're not going there. Nope, we're not going there. Nope, we're not going there. And that must happen every day in a company like that because there's so many options. I'm sure it does. You know, whereas we're cash limited, we're going to say, okay, we can't go over here. We don't have the money. Yeah. But they don't have that excuse. They don't get to say, no, we don't have the money. Somebody can say, well, I can yeah. I can go spend $3 billion. Well, this comes this. back to my original definition of strategy. Yeah. Strategy is about choice. Yeah. Strategy is 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 all about choice. And right. and, and sometimes you're 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 choosing between uh some very compelling options. I, I also think in an innovation culture, you you really, in order to be successful, you have to get good and comfortable at killing things. Yeah. You're because right. and, and the best way to think about that in in my experience, what what you know my experience has taught me is killing an idea is just making room for another one. Yeah. Right. That's that's really what you're doing. Yeah. So let's just shift this a little bit into sort of you've been you've been in a in a variety of roles over the course of your career. You've seen a lot of different avenues to where this can go. And I'm just curious to, to hear how the relationship between product innovation strategy has changed over time and sort of where you think it's headed as we sort of progress because the technology side is playing an ever increasing role in how all of these businesses, even if they don't see themselves as technology companies, they're influenced by it. So just give us a sense of kind of where, where you see that headed. Well, first of all, the pace of change has increased dramatically in almost every industry that I can think of, and, and it, it only continues to get higher. So yeah. when I think about when I started in strategy, I go back to the late 90s, and we used to talk a lot about creating durable competitive advantage or sustainable advantage. And we used to architect plans that were, you know, three-year, five-year strategies, things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we used to think about, you know, a brand positioning that you would, you would think of as being locked and loaded for a period of time and reflecting back on that and in in yeah. the current context is the notion of a five-year strategy is laughable right. right they just they it doesn't work so first of all you just can't operate with with the idea that things you put in place today will even be relevant even maybe a few years from now so in almost every industry that i see and that i look at the the pace of change has just gone up dramatically and i think that's a big shift that's a bigger shift in more mature industries than it is in consumer brands where consumer brands have always kind of, I mean, we, we, we spent time in the juvenile products category or in the, you know, Hasbro's down the road, you got the Toyka and there that's, it is a constant state of change, but you go into more mature companies and now that that's moved into those companies too, where they're starting to say like, okay, we can't be the same company we were just a couple of years ago. I think it affects all actually, yeah. even <clears throat> consumer products companies. Yeah. Um, you know, you have product life cycles that, that just, you know, have been shortened down right. to, in some cases, you know, a, a year or something now, you know, in the, in the toy industry or the juvenile products industry, maybe it's always been that way, yeah. but certainly not in others. So the implication of that is that, you have to be able to capture the value and realize the return on the investment in a very, very short period of time. And uh, that that places a, a huge burden on things like development cycles and, and how you manage cost and just the, the, the unit economics of, of any business. So so that is certainly something that that I see 
uh, uh, becoming increasingly challenging. And then I think feeding into that, um, we now live in a world where uh, uh, the best of companies have access to real-time data um, in new and different ways all the time. So this is customer data, this is product usage data, this is all kinds of data in, in, in getting a real-time read on that right. um, just sort of feeds the fire of, of that change. And, and uh, uh, you know, data, and the way companies think about and deal with data is, is something that many organizations are really having to contend with for the first time. Right. And it's an incredible challenge. They may not have the infrastructure, they may not have the talent, the capabilities to uh, to, to deal with that. I, I think of the the importance of software as as being a very similar thing. I mean, software. I'm sure you see this in in so much of the work that your firm does. Software becomes a, a, a bigger and bigger component of even hardware systems, yeah. right? So uh, companies need to adapt and and shift to that kind of data driven, software driven mindset, and that causes uh, a, a lot of challenges for companies that may maybe uh, have have been built and have really built a customer base and a lot of uh, uh, strength um, uh, in in the hardware space or something like that. And and I, I think the 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 follow on to that and this is a really interesting one is those things combined have given way more and more to alternate business models right. and disruptive business models. Well, because we all get to see the same data, the technology has all become commoditized. Not all is more commoditized. There's, it's more accessible. And so now all of a sudden it's like, okay, well, what else can you do? Yeah. <laughs> what else you got? Yeah. yeah. And, and that, 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 that reality impacts everybody's business strategy because it's like, okay, well, I get the same data you have. Yes. I can go, uh, see the analytics on a web page. I can go see the small companies can see it. Big companies can see it. Now, maybe small companies are limited in how they process that information or limited in how they're able to act on that information, Yes, but they can get it. And that's yes. a really fascinating space for all of us to be in where all of a sudden it's like we all, the, the, the playing field is a little bit leveled in that regard. And yet those who can do well with it have this opportunity to really like push themselves forward in a way that they couldn't 20 years ago. It, it, it's really a field for innovation, isn't it? Yeah. Right. How, how you leverage data. Yeah. I think there's, there's a lot there and a lot left to go. But when I brought up disruptive business models, I mean, this is a really uh, maybe a, a point worth hitting on. I mean, yeah. I'll use an example in the consumer electronics space. I mean, the emergence of, of uh, voice assistance in smart speakers, right, is, was, a, was a very disruptive mm -hmm. technology that kind of came out of nowhere. I mean, the, the, the weak signals were there early on, but I think the suddenness and the scale at which the likes of Amazon came on with Alexa and, and Google and, uh, and, and others, uh, I, I think was something that was hard to anticipate. And um, when you think about the business models that, that underlie that, I mean, you know, Amazon uh, did not come into the market with uh, Alexa-powered speakers to, uh, to make a lot of margin off of hardware speakers. No, it's right. a completely different business model. So, right. so I think the, um, the frequency and the rate mm. at which businesses can find themselves in a situation where they are now competing against uh, another company that has a fundamentally different business model. Uh, we're seeing that more and more often, and that is, that is extremely challenging. Yeah, it's I mean, challenging yeah. for strategy and for innovation. Yeah, it's an interesting 
analogy to use the Amazon Alexa speaker, which I have one at home. I have a Bose uh, voice enabled speaker at home. I have a Facebook portal that's voice enabled sure. at home and all three have a different model. Yes. All, and they're the same hardware output. They're the same. Yes. Fundamentally, I I use them sort of similarly, which is I play music in one place, I play music in another, and I play music in a yes. third. But the model that lives behind them is totally unrelated. I yes. kind of hadn't even occurred to me until you just said it. That yeah. like, I got these three pieces of hardware that I use the same way, but the company's goals with those are all different. Very different. Very and, different. And uh, there's like a, a little bit of a, I don't, I don't want to call it a veil, but there's a little bit of a mask that goes on to the customer side because most people don't put two and two. To, they're not thinking about that in that way. It's like, well, what is this thing? What am I doing with this thing? I want to play music. Okay. I'll just go play yeah. music. Yeah. Yeah. The business model should be transparent to the customer. Right. Uh, right. And, and, and in most cases is right. Usually, usually <laughs> so it depends on how cynical <laughs> You are, you know, True like, enough. that's enough. Yes. Because yes. for some of those, you could be like, well, what are you actually doing with what you're listening to? Yes. And yes. for others, you just go, oh, yeah, you're just playing the song I asked for. Yes. As we navigate all this madness that we're talking about with regards to more accessibility to data, more accessibility to customers, more commoditized technologies, and we bring all of that onto the table there are critical elements to innovation that allow a company to continue to thrive and foster a culture, knowing that all of that stuff is available to them. Give us sort of your perspective on how that has played out in your career, in your, in your current role, and how you've seen that evolve over time, and what sort of tips and tricks people can sort of take on from the way that they build their teams, the way that they complement their teams, which I think is a something we don't talk about enough is that the mm -hmm. teams need to be complemented with other attributes and other, and other um, uh, sort of facilities to help them do their jobs and then grow them into the, into, into a, an organization that's really pushing forward at all times. And it's sort of ingrained in the way that they push forward. Sure. So I'll generalize a little bit because uh, I think this applies to almost any organization that okay. really wants to, to build a, an innovation culture. And, and to me, there's a handful of fundamentals that you really have to get right. And where I would start is with the people. Okay. So that sounds perhaps like a, like an obvious thing, but yeah. I'm going to get a little bit more specific. Yeah. So particularly in large organizations, if you really want to foster and sustain an innovation culture. You have to be able to attract and retain and empower a certain type of individual, and you have to have them in the right balance, that are really the uh, uh, the the the, the innovators, right? right. And, and I, I know you'll relate to this because you're, you're in the innovation business, but there's a natural, innovation can be taught, but there's, there's just sort of a, a, some people are just naturally inquisitive and I'm gonna yep. call, I'm gonna say it goes beyond inquisitiveness. Yeah. Um, I, I sometimes uh, have heard, heard it referred to as the malcontents, yeah. right? You have to, these, these tend to be the corporate rabble rousers, right. right? The people that walk the earth always dissatisfied with the status quo. They're always looking at things and saying, I, 
I see room for improvement. I want to change this. They're, they're the people that just naturally, it, it's the way they're wired. They're looking for problems to solve in very creative ways. They, everything they look at is an opportunity to improve, to solve, to, to bend the rules, to break things. Now, the reason I bring this up is that the larger the organization gets, the more like, likely it is that it will reject people like right. that, right? So you have this inherent tension that exists in, in big companies in particular. So I think it's absolutely imperative. It's a very difficult thing to do. But if a, if a company really wants to build an innovation culture, you have to figure out a way that you have just the right balance of those type of people that are going to really spawn the ideas, mm -hmm. championing them. They're gonna. These are the people who will be tenacious enough to not let themselves get knocked down. As you know, in the early days, I mean, some ideas seem like crazy ideas. The things that eventually turn into brilliant products in the early days may seem totally crazy. Just imagine the first meeting. I'm going to just talk to the speaker. I'm just going to talk to the speaker. What? Are right. you out of your mind? No, no, that's what I'm going to do. We're going to talk to the speaker. And then the speaker's going to answer. And then it's going to do what I tell it. That was, imagine that meeting. That, that was, was somebody's fun. idea. Yeah. That was somebody's idea. Yeah. So, and that's one of those people that you're talking about. That's one like, of those, that's, that's, that's how that, we're going to that, do it. That's one of those, those, those people. Why and are so, you making me pick up my phone? So, so organizationally and as a leader, you, you have to uh, come to terms with the fact that you're going to have to have some of those people. They're mm -hmm. going to cause friction in the organization. They're going to get rejected. They're going to, to you know, there's, there's going to be tension. You're going to spend some of your time resolving and smoothing over the problems. And, and you have to then think about what's the right balance. If you have too many of those people, you can descend into organizational chaos and nothing gets done because it's, it's just, it's organizational entropy. Right. If you have too few of them, you'll never really succeed in building a true innovation culture. The organization will reject them like a bad organ or will just swallow them up and it will sort of fall over. So I think to, to, to my way of thinking that the people and the balance and, and finding the, that right balance is absolutely an imperative and very, very difficult to do. Yeah. So um, the, the second thing as a generality is you have to, no matter what industry you're in, you have to obsess over the customer. And the bigger the company gets, oftentimes the Harder it is to do this because individuals in your organization become a little bit farther and farther removed from the front lines. They may become, you know, extra layers removed from, from mm -hmm. the customer. They have mm -hmm. less interaction. Uh, in a small company, it's very easy to do. But you really, truly have to obsess over who your customer is. You have to be laser focused. You have to know who your customer is, who they are not. not. You have to be very clear about that. Right. And you have to be methodical and, and, and absolutely consistent about always trying to understand where those customers are living with frustrations or inconveniences or they're underserved because that really is the key to, to unlocking innovation. And, and I've seen it's very easy for companies to drift from that over time, particularly in times of success. So, so you have to have the right people in the right balance. You have to obsess over the customer and, and I, I think there's another uh, uh, piece of this too, which becomes very important, which is you have to create a culture where ideas can come from anywhere and they can be nurtured, you know, and, and sort of be allowed to grow. But you also have to build management systems in an operating model that is very rigorous and methodical about how to process those ideas. We talked right. about this a little earlier, yeah. right? You, you, 
the an innovation culture is not the same as randomness. No. So you have to have both the ability to let ideas bubble up from almost anywhere. You have to sort of incent that kind of culture, but then you have to be very good at processing them through the funnel and imply, applying that objectivity that we spoke about earlier mm -hmm. to decide how far to an, advance an idea, progressively fund things, kill, move on. Yep. And so you have to sort of build both of that in. Um, it, sort of, it sort of drives home this point that I have believed for a really long time and have executed in a way that I think is makes it true, which is innovation isn't magic. It's a combination of talent, process, initiative, and a, and a culture and a place that allows it to happen. That's right. It's not... It's not a it's not a lab and a closet and somebody in there coming up with all these brilliant ideas and then yep. dropping them on the world. It doesn't it can't work that way. It you, doesn't work it that doesn't way. Work it doesn't work that it, way. It can't and it doesn't yeah. work that way. And, and and having that process without the process, they're just a bunch of ideas. They're not innovations. They're just ideas sitting on a table or in a lab or in a work environment and they're not something that you can you can profitably commercialize. Even in big companies, ideas are typically not the scarcity. No. There is, there is generally not a shortage of ideas. No. There is a, a shortage of capacity to do something with those ideas. Yeah. So, so uh, it leads me to my hmm. sort of my fourth point here of what does it take to build and sustain an innovation culture? This one may be uh, often overlooked, but you have to have a healthy and profitable core. Hmm. Right. So innovation is all about changing the business for the future and, and, and generating the new. But in organizations, if you're not also just sort of minding the shop and have a really healthy, profitable core business that is providing the oxygen for those new ideas, it's very hard for organizations to sustain the appetite and the patience for the new things and give them enough runway. So right. you you really have to have a, a well-run organization and you have to have a solid business core and you have to be using that to generate the, uh, the the fuel, the sort of the investable right. capital to to go after the, the new things in, in a general sense. Now, think, of course, yeah. you know, well-funded uh, unicorn startups sort of are, are an exception to that rule, right? Yeah, but, but even, even that, I mean, that core is the funding. Yes. Right? Like, I mean, if it's, you're... It, 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 the funding is a proxy for a healthy core. Right. Until you get there. Until you get there. And yeah. the idea that the, the core has to be healthy, I think is... is I, I remember reading this a long time ago, and I'm going to forget the actual company that, 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 that referenced it, but they were talking about being a service business, taking on outside projects that you're going to now go leverage as your own revenue generator not a part of your service. And the first thing that this company said was, you have to have a good service business. Yes. You can't do this if your service business sucks. No, and it's it the same work. idea, right? It doesn't work. So if your core business isn't doing well, well enough, yes. it's very hard to take a chance on something new because you risk upsetting what is already not working. Yes. And this segues to my fifth and last element of what I think is really important is that is you have to understand the difference between innovators and operators. Yeah. And, and, and this sort of ties back to the, the first point I was making about talent and having the right balance. You, you have to um, uh, make sure that you, you know the difference between the people who are running the business and, and minding the shop and, and, and building that, that healthy, sustainable core. You need that you need those people uh, in the right balance that you need the, 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 the sort of the 
you know, the malcontents yeah. who are, are always looking to change the new. You know, you you absolutely want innovation and innovators in in design and R and D and certainly in marketing. Most companies don't want innovators in accounting. No, right? no. Those usually send people to jail. Yes. <laughs> so you and I've had this conversation over many beers about this idea of celebrating failure, celebrating wins and not navel gazing when you do, when you do well. And I think something that some companies, that's something that some companies struggle with is this idea that like, Hey, we did it well. And now let's just like put this up on high and this is the way that it's going to always be. Yes. And I feel like there's things that happen within organizations where you can start to build a little more self-reflection into the process that allows you to look at something successful, something that's failed and try to draw out of them the best of all in order to keep this, keep this sort of ball rolling. And one thing that struck me about working with you through all the years that you and I have is it's a trait that you uniquely have, which is this ability to go, okay, that was great. And it went pretty well. So now let's move on to this next thing and not, uh, dwell on either the good or the bad from the prior. And I think that's something that that's, you that's hard to teach. Mm. And that's something that I think comes a out of personality and B out of experience. And I think it's something that when you listed out the people that are involved in that, that person is so critical to the success of an organization is having somebody who's able to sort of filter out even because even things that look like they're great, there's parts of them that are a disaster. And we just For gloss sure. over those because they're a commercial success yes, or they're a marketing success or business success or whatever it is. And that, that attribute of being able to go, okay, well, let's self-reflect. Let's really look at what we did. Let's understand this went well, mm -hmm. but there's all these other attributes that didn't go well. Is something that you have a really unique skill at, mm. and it's not one that I've come across in a lot of other places. And I think it's something that shouldn't be undersold in this, in this sort of culture of moving things forward is you need that person desperately, because if you mm. don't have that person or team of people that can come up with that, you end up being misguided about what you did well and what you didn't do well. You're in, you're, 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 you're unable to self evaluate your own progress and you end up potentially making bad decisions as a result, because you mm -hmm. think what you did well was ha happened. I mean, it could have happened by luck, right? It happened that somebody picked up your product at the right time and there was a photo taken of them and boom, it took off. Yeah. That doesn't mean you were brilliant. That means you, you were in the right place at the right time. Yeah. And so that, that I think is something that I'm going to put that as a sixth pillar. <laughs> that could be a sixth pillar. You, need, you is, need that person. You, you need the discipline. You need the critical thinking. You need the objectivity. I'll, I'll, I'll again, I'll come back and anchor on the, the very first definition I gave of strategy about making choice, but also with internal constraints. And I think, you know, that's from my own viewpoint, I try to embrace change, uh, try yeah. to, uh, Take learnings from successes and failures. Uh, try to try to make sure that that information is is available and, and socialized, and and try to maintain a forward looking mindset. Because for me, uh, you know, given the constraints of any organization, you yeah. again you only have so much to work with. So you have to be always learning and 
failing fast and um, carrying those learnings forward. Because if you continue to repeat the same mistakes, you're just consuming resources yeah. and and uh, shutting down the opportunity. And to the, do other the things. failing fast. I mean, we failing fast has become one of those throwaway terms where it's like, sure. oh, you got to fail fast. Sure. Practicing failing fast is a skill. It's yes. like an actual skill of saying, yeah. okay, we put this into practice. We got it to this point. It's not working. Everybody stop. Yes. And having the bravery to say, okay, yeah, you're not all getting, you're not all fired. Right. But don't work on this anymore. You know, sometimes you can fail fast and sometimes failure or the decision to shut something down is more like gradually and then suddenly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, this you know, is looking uh, ugly. Okay. Done. Yes. You know, like, yeah, yeah I think that's yeah. a, that's an, that's that, that again comes back to this, like it's a, that is a cultural attribute within an organization yeah. to be comfortable with that. I mean, we have clients who don't kill anything at all yeah. and everybody in the room knows half the shit on the wall is unnecessary, but yes. nobody's willing to come in there and go, okay, we don't need that one. We don't need that one. We don't need that one. And you're not all fired. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you're not all fired. Yes. Everybody's doing fine. Yes. We just don't need all this stuff. Yes. So, so I, so I would agree. If you want to build and sustain an innovation culture, you absolutely in leadership has to model this behavior. Yeah. You have to make it okay to celebrate the failures yeah. and make sure that people understand that, that what might look like a failure is not necessarily an indictment on talent or anything like that. So as we, as we think about that and, and look at companies that are trying to figure all of this out, Give us the Darren Abrams advice of what does this do? How does this, how does, how does this work? If I'm building a company and I don't have the experience you have, and I want to, and I want to build this culture or shift the culture of the organization that I'm in, give us sort of the advice that you would, that you would provide to, to help a company understand how they can go through that process. What does that look like to you? Well, First of all, it's it's a journey. It's a it's a long process. Uh, I, I think cultural change of any sort. Let, let's it's hard. It's hard. Right? Changing a culture. If you're specifically asked about shifting a culture, yeah. and um, shifting a culture is incredibly hard, especially if it's a big company. Especially if it's a big company. But 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 even in in a mid sized company, mm -hmm. you know, cultural change is difficult because culture comes from the inside, right? right. Every, every member of that organization is part of the culture. So changing that requires a tremendous commitment. It takes uh, commitment over time. Uh, it has to come from the top and it also really has to sort of come at the grassroots level. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I think a big mistake that leaders can make is, is thinking that a, a, a statement at a town hall meeting or you know something like that, you know, a declaration of change is gonna automatically lead to, to culture shift. It, it won't, I think, you know, many like people a, would. You mean like a, like a PowerPoint doesn't lead to culture? Yeah, just even, you know, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, I, I mean, uh, there's, there's, a, there's an adage uh, in strategy that um, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Uh, uh, and, and in so many ways, that is true. And it's yeah. something that as strategists, we live with all the time, right? right? Even though the best laid plans often require a heavy degree of change management and uh, in, in order to be effective. So shifting a culture in an organization is an incredibly difficult thing. I would say that if a company is contemplating um, you know, trying to foster a more innovative culture, I, I think it, it 
it begs the question, uh, may, or, or I would say making sure you understand why. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes I think there's this uh, idea that if we could only be more innovative, it's like some sort of a panacea. Mm -hmm. um, is it really, uh, does it align with the strategy? Um, it, and, and, you know, can you articulate ex specifically what it is about your culture that exists today that is holding you back, right? So I think really holding up that mirror and and sort of reflecting back on what it is that you're trying to change is, is incredibly important. The other thing just is, is a, a general truism um, that I, th I think um, exists in strategy in general is that many companies and organizations put a lot of energy into developing a strategy, developing the fact base, analyzing the data, identifying strategy choices and options, and then determining a strategy and sort of having a go forward plan and, and developing conviction and feeling very, very good about it. They spend a lot less time, this is very, very common, to spend a lot less time thinking about rigorously the capabilities that are going to be required to actually put that strategy uh. into practice. So it's very easy for teams and, and companies to, to really focus on the outward facing part of strategy and almost assume away that, yeah, we'll figure out how to do that. We'll figure out, we'll just, we'll get, we'll, we'll hire the right people. We'll, we'll, consultant. we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll get a consultant. People. We'll, we'll yeah. build the capabilities. We'll allocate enough mm -hmm. money. And, and I think if I could uh, assign, um, you know, attribution for, for failure of, of strategy to like any one thing. It is very often that it's huh. not, not always that the strategy is misplaced. It's that there was not enough effort put into assessing what the, the true capabilities needs uh, are going to be to, to um, be successful with that strategy. Yeah. So shifting culture is hard. Uh, and I think it really requires an, uh, a degree of intellectual honesty of what it's really going to take. People, processes, talent, um, you know, sticking with it when, when things aren't going so well. It's a, it's, it's a journey. Conviction. Conviction. Yeah. And patience. And patience. I feel like that, that, that notion of, I actually have never heard it articulated or articulated that way, which is you can document your strategy. You can write down this plan that is perfectly valid, very reasonable, customer centric, technology centric, and yet not fitting the staff that you have. And that then by default means it probably won't work. Strategy is always about moving from where you are today to some desired end state. Right. That's why we do strategy. And so if you want to move from today's status quo to some desired end state that is fundamentally different from where you are today, it, it's implicit that you're going to have to develop different capabilities, invest differently yeah. Build different talent, build different technology, different IP, whatever the case may be. And and really having that assessment of how big that gap is, is is a strategic imperative. You you really can't execute strategy very well without it. Fascinating. Okay. I could go on for five hours. I could too. <laughs> I don't think your listeners want to hear that. I don't that. think so either. But this has been great. And yet again, another conversation with somebody whom I know very well, whom yes. I've had lots of conversations with in the past. And yet having this focused dialogue, like we're working on a strategy right now for my company 
and I am taking notes. Good. <laughs> and we're Good. gonna do the same types of activities that you've mentioned and and try to put those into practice here because it is hard and it is something that you have to constantly reevaluate. Yes. And as you're as you're navigating the the ever-changing business landscape, be honest with where that strategy has legs and then where that strategy maybe doesn't have legs and start to, to rebuild it all the time. So, um, I think that this, uh, this was fantastic. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So if people want to get in touch with you, um, outside of this podcast, um, we're going to put your LinkedIn in the notes. Find me on LinkedIn. And, um, please reach out to Darren Abrams with any questions that you have. And, you'll look to see the results of the new strategies as Bose carries on over the next decade-ish or longer. I have no idea. So I uh, hope you enjoyed it. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back next week. Mm-hmm.